This is the Monday, August 14, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back to the Gilded Age and pre-World War II America to hear the voices of those who held crowds enthralled. Time didn't even seem to pass. It was an amazing experience, and as a practical matter, It was the only way you could really hear somebody or feel a connection to a leader because there wasn't mass media. Our campaign manager on this journey is Jeremy C. Young, and his book is The Age of Charisma, Leaders, Followers, and Emotions in American Society, 1870-1940. In it, Jeremy examines the nexus of American society, culture, and politics tracing the modern relationship between leaders and supporters back to a unique group of charismatic social movements, it was an age of magnetism, of dramatic gestures on the stump, of Christian revivals led by riveting preachers, and it laid the groundwork for today's mass media. All this and more is a passion for Jeremy C. Young, and he's here to share all the emotion and drama with us today to literally try to take us back in time and let us hear some clips that we have from the kinds of speakers we're talking about. Jeremy C. Young is Assistant Professor of History at Dixie State University in St. George, Utah. You may have seen his editorials in many newspapers, including the Chicago Sun-Times, San Francisco Chronicle, and Seattle Times. You can find him on Twitter at Jeremy C. Young, at JeremyCYoung.com, or at facebook.com slash the age of charisma. Okay, now that we've elbowed our way to a seat in the front row, let's meet Jeremy C. Young and visit the age of charisma. I'm joined via Skype by Jeremy C. Young, author of The Age of Charisma. Leaders, Followers, and Emotions in American Society, 1870-1940. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a 
fun topic. It's great to have a book that takes such a broad scope and speaks about something that we don't think about, which is how people speak. You know, we, we kind of hear people now. We have so much video. We didn't really think that much about what came before. Even historians don't because we're so used to being fed with video, and with audio, and knowing how people speak seems pretty basic, right? But there are many styles. And right out of the gate, I'd like you to define this term charisma as you use it in the age of charisma. What does it mean in the context of the style you cover in the book and of this time, this period between 1870 and 1940? So charisma in the way that I use it has three overlapping meanings. Uh, The first and maybe the most interesting is that it was a particular style of public speaking, which was named at the time personal magnetism. It was a style that had uh, some distinctive features. The highs were very high and the lows were very low, which we call an expanded pitch range. It was poetic in a sort of sing-song way, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, etc. And finally, it used a sort of operatic tone quality called the orotund voice, which sounds like this. Yo! And so that's one meaning of charisma. Uh, The other meanings were a relationship between leaders and followers in America in this time period. And finally, a discussion about democracy, about what it meant to have ordinary people responding emotionally to leaders and whether or not that was good for American society. This style comes about after the Civil War. So tell us who pioneers it. How does it get its start? And where would we find it in American life during this period of the Gilded Age through the attack on Pearl Harbor? The charismatic style, the personally magnetic style, was invented by a medical doctor named James Rush uh, as early as 1827. Rush was the son of a uh, signer of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Rush. And he writes this 600-page book in the 1820s in which he invents this style of public speaking with all the distinctive features that I've mentioned. And it takes a while for this style to really take hold in American educational systems. Another friend of Russia's writes a textbook based on the style. And then eventually people start studying this in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. And as those people grow up and become major political, religious, social activist figures, that's when the style begins to become prominent. So you would hear this style in some churches. You would hear it in political settings. You would hear it among lobbyists and social activists, leaders of movements such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And you really begin to hear it starting in the 1870s. There are a few people who use it earlier, but it's really not until the 1870s that it becomes really prominent. I mentioned earlier about historians and people that read not really thinking about that style. And I guess what I meant by that was the fact that today we have people that are practiced in speaking. You figure there's only one way to do it, but we're also served up the soundbite. It reminded me of a 1992 University of California study. They found that the average length of a soundbite in packages about that presidential campaign 
had fallen down to nine seconds. It had been 43 seconds just 24 years earlier in the 1968 campaign. Here in 2017, we're down to one-word quotes. Sometimes it's only a couple seconds. Sometimes it'll be a journalist that's reading something over just B-roll of a candidate walking or speaking. They'll summarize it for us, and we're part of that too. We want short clip things. We want a little YouTube clip. We want things that are just there, and we want it very bare bones. One of the other things that may make us not think so much about this charismatic style the way we should and take it seriously is it's parodied a lot, isn't it? It's talked about as if it's a joke. It's sort of a silly way you think of old people speaking, sort of like that mid-Atlantic accent in the old movies where nobody really talks like that chappy out of their noses. <laughs> you know, So it, it's something that people almost laugh at. It almost begins to seem buffoonish. So Explain to our listeners the central place these long speeches and charismatic speakers took during the age of charisma and why that was so important for them not to just be flipping through their phones while a public speaker was speaking, but really to sit there in that audience and maybe spend two hours, right? Two hours or something for a speech sounds impossible in this era of these short clips I was talking about. So talk about that central place it would take in your life if you were a person that was going to church or you were a person that was really for a candidate, wanted to hear what they had to say. What place did that play in the age of charisma? Well, the thing we have to understand is that for the most part, these charismatic speeches were not about the content of the speech. It doesn't mean that people weren't listening to the ideas that were being put out there, but charismatic speeches were an emotional experience. They were a way for ordinary people to engage with their leaders in a way that really had never happened before. Before the 1870s and 80s, Presidential candidates didn't even run for office, uh, didn't even campaign for office because it was considered to be a bad idea, to be an example of demagoguery if you tried to win over the voters. And what happened was as the country got bigger and voters started to feel more and more remote from their leaders, they began to really want this emotional link with their leaders. And so when presidential candidates, religious leaders, and other leaders began to travel the country and give these emotional, charismatic speeches directly to an audience, people would go and they would have transformational experiences that really similar to conversion experiences, just listening to these political figures speak, shaking their hands, and being able to engage with them emotionally in a way that really had never been possible before this time period. The term stemwinder is one that we use a lot today, for instance, in those packages I just mentioned to denote a great speech. And we find it coming about in the mid 1800s. And I think, again, sort of from the distance of history, not really thinking about it, people just will say, as a matter of fact, that, oh, well, that's what they called them back then. And it was because of the winding of a stem of a watch, of a pocket watch back in those days before the Great War when people didn't wear watches on their wrists. I was surprised to learn from you as we chatted via email and on Twitter at Jeremy C. Young that while researching the age of charisma, you didn't come across that term much. This is something great to come across in a book when you realize you're wrong about something, get the right story. So really, they didn't use that term a lot. Well, the term wasn't used. It just wasn't really applied to these charismatic speeches. Other terms were more common such as spellbinding speeches, which was common for this period. Another example, probably the best example, is the term personal magnetism. And it's interesting that you came up with this term stemwinder and connected it with watches because 
a lot of references in newspapers to personal magnetism in this time period refer to people believing that their own personal magnetism, their charisma, if you will, was stopping the wristwatches they were carrying around on their on their arms, hmm. <laughs> that it had some sort of magnetic effect, physical magnetism on the watches. And so the idea that a charismatic person could wind the stem of a watch just through their personality is really fascinating and really does have a link with what people were talking about at the time. It's something that throughout the age of charisma, you describe these magic terms that people use, magnetism. You think of a man with a long coat, maybe a, the Batman villain with the, you know, his hat <laughs> pops up and he hypnotizes you, a, a hypnotist or a magician up there, spellbinding. Half of that word is spell, casting a spell on people. These magic things happen. It's really something that that was the feeling that people had, that it was this really this conversion. As you said, we talk about a negative mirror of this with Hitler when he's coming to power late in the age of charisma and people say, he was looking right at me. Did you see he was looking right at me? And people next to them will say, I had the same experience. I felt he was just looking at me. And this was also something that he practiced, by the way, when he's coming to power. If people look up online, they'll see the pictures of Hitler practicing his various gesticulations and this and that. People really felt attached. And that was a big part of their lives because otherwise, how were you ever going to hear a William Jennings Bryan speech? You weren't going to because you didn't have a radio. Radio didn't exist. So you had to physically go there and they had one chance to connect with you. If they were a preacher, they had one chance to save your soul. If you were a candidate, you had one chance to get that farmer's vote when you're passing through a town and you're campaigning. And so that's something that really was a connection. And it took on this mythical significance that is hard to relate to today, I think. No, I think that's true. And we should talk about Hitler and Mussolini and their use of charisma one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is to liberate the idea of charismatic speaking from these horrible people who used this technique in Europe in the 1920s and 30s. One thing that I should point out is that the speaking style that Hitler and Mussolini used was very, very different from the charismatic style. It was, it was actually much more emotional than the style that was being used in America. And it really did sort of cause listeners to take leave of their senses. I think in the American context, there's a lot of evidence that people who listened to these charismatic speeches, while they were very affected emotionally by them, it was a stirring experience, it was a transforming experience, it was still an experience where they were able to maintain a sort of rational look at what was going on around them. They, they, there are a lot of examples of people going to a charismatic speech and sort of going home and thinking about it for a couple of days and then deciding, okay, I'm all in for this guy or woman. And that's not something you hear a lot about in the European context. So, so one of the things that I'm arguing is that you can actually, if you dial back that emotion just a little bit from what you see in the European context, you can have something very healthy and very democratic. Listeners may be familiar with three-time presidential candidate, later Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan and his Cross of Gold speech. We wanted to use that as an example of how mastery of the charismatic style could allow a leader to mobilize not just supporters, but the followers you mentioned in the subhead of the Age of Charisma. To demonstrate the style, you chose a clip that we have here of Brian. He's recreating his speech for listeners in 1923. So let's give a listen to this, and then I'll let you break it down for us. We turn not upon what line the battle is fought. If they say bimetallism is good, 
but that we cannot have it until other nations help us, we reply that instead of having a gold standard, because England has, we were restored by metalism, and then let England have by metalism, because the United States has. If they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standards, the good thing, we will fight them to the uttermost. Having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. What do you hear when you hear that speech? And tell us how that wins William Jennings Bryan, the 1896 nomination by acclamation at that convention. Well, this is probably the most famous personally magnetic or charismatic speech from this time period. Brian, before he gives this speech, was a 35-year-old former congressman from Nebraska. He was not considered to be uh, any kind of a major national figure. He goes to the Democratic National Convention in 1896, and he gives this speech about this currency issue of free silver, which is a popular uh, issue of political concern at the time. And the audience is just absolutely stunned by the way that he speaks. It, there are reporters who describe it as uh, the audience as being swayed like windswept fields. Uh, and the volume of sound grew and grew until it could grow no more and everyone went mad. The audience gave Brian a half hour standing ovation. They carried him around the convention center in Chicago on their shoulders, and then they nominated him for president, a guy that most of them had never heard of before the convention occurred. Now, the speech itself demonstrates, I think, all of the major features of the charismatic style. Uh, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. There's the uh, expanded pitch range. Um, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold is perfect iambic hexameter. If you know anything about poetry and poetic meters, that's that melody of speech aspect. And then uh, Brian's signature uh, round, rich tone, you shall not crucify mankind. That's the oroton voice. So all the stylistic aspects are there. Uh, what's interesting about this recording is that it was made, as you mentioned, 27 years after Brian uh, made the original speech and just two years before Brian died. Um, and the recording is in many ways very different from the experience of listening to the speech in person. Um, there's a photo, actually, of Brian making this recording, and it's really stunning to look at. Um, you see Brian just dripping sweat, standing in what looks like an outdoor uh, arena, uh, shouting into uh, into the bulb of a Victrola as loudly as he can while a brass band plays right next to him recording somewhere else for a different recording. Uh, and yet he's able to, to give you a large portion of that emotional experience. You can the style may sound strange to modern audiences, but you can hear all of the techniques that he used that made audiences in the late 1800s just absolutely swoon. 
And you mentioned that they give him a half an hour standing ovation. They're carrying him around on their shoulders. But that follows a long period of just stunned silence, especially since he holds his arms up, right, when he, he's demonstrating this. The, the movements, we're only getting half of it here when we get the audio. Maybe some would say less than half of it because you can hear words and read words, but it's about the delivery. And so they're literally stunned into silence by his speech as he stands there, I'm sure at the time, equally sweating this young man, passionately speaking out against the gold standard, holding his arms out like Christ on the cross. It's a powerful moment. And that brings us to our next clip, another one you suggested by Billy Sunday in 1926. I mention this one because people can go to YouTube and actually see him demonstrating this style. And you get an idea. Maybe you can imagine a little bit of William Jennings Bryan doing this and invoking this image. And by the way, that's a speech that he would give again and again, the cross of gold. He delivered that throughout the campaign. But we remember this one because it's an amazing feat to come in there as nobody and give a speech that wins you the presidential nomination as only a very young man in your 30s. He was barely old enough under the Constitution to even run for president. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and and one of the things uh, that I like to tell people is that today, most American uh, elementary school students, middle school students, learn two famous American speeches, the Gettysburg Address and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Before the 1960s, most Americans learned the Gettysburg Address and William Jennings Bryan's Cross of Gold speech. That's how important it was. Uh, it was considered to be one of the two foundational speeches in American history. And the fact that we can listen to this one, which we, of course, can't with the Gettysburg Address, makes it even more powerful. I like to be able to actually have the audio. And then we can remind ourselves when we read these speeches, even when we just read text, for instance, of those pre-Woodrow Wilson State of the Union addresses where they just wrote them and submitted them to Congress. You maybe imagine a little bit of somebody like Theodore Roosevelt delivering one or somebody like William Howard Taft delivering it. And Taft probably wasn't isn't the greatest order, but you you could sort of imagine what somebody would do when they deliver it in a charismatic style that I think adds very much. After you've read The Age of Charisma, you realize these weren't just people like we see today. They weren't politicians just up there reading it off the prompter, pausing. It's just a different style. It's not better or worse. It's just this fits our time. That was their time. And it was important to them to make that connection. You had to leave there thinking, wow, I, I saw a William Jennings Bryan speech. And you tell your grandkids about it, about seeing a president come through and speak or a presidential candidate or seeing a preacher, seeing a Billy Graham come through your town. It was really that much of a connection. It was like Seeing, I don't even know what to compare it to in our modern age where you would say, wow, I had that connection with a person, with a candidate. Right. And actually, you might uh, tell your grandkids about it, but you might also name your kids after William Jennings Bryan. This was something very common that, that, that thousands of Americans did in the late 1800s and early 1900s, named their children various, uh, various combinations of Bryan's three names. Uh, one family had a set of triplets that they named William, Jennings, and Brian. <laughs> and another family had a girl. What do you do with a girl? They named her Brianette. <laughs> wow, I thought they were going to go with Wilhelmina. <laughs> that would be a better idea, I think. <laughs> 
Yeah, those are fun when you when you know history, you read about some of these figures and every now and then you'll come across an obituary of somebody who's recently passed away or even in a news story. One time I found a news story of all things about the Houston Stadium where Rutgers was going to play what turned out to be their first bowl game. You never know. We played in the very first football game ever in college football. Huh. So it took us that long to win a bowl game. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we um, the fellow, the groundskeeper's name was Cholgosh. And oh, yeah. I thought, how did this man get the name of a presidential assassin? And fortunately, they did ask him about it. And he, he didn't really know it, but it was a family name they'd passed down. So apparently somebody was not a fan of William McKinley and decided to give the name of his assassin to their son, who was African-American. And on the other side, you'll also find a lot of African-Americans as well as European-Americans named after uh, William McKinley or after James Garfield or one of these presidents that was slain. And that's also a, a unique way to immortalize somebody that you love that uh, we probably don't think of much today, although there are some girls that are adults now that were girls at the time of the song Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac, for instance. And I know Stevie Nicks says, I can't believe that they come up to me at concerts and I say, wow, I, I must be, she starts to realize that she's old when they name you after Rhiannon. But maybe that's what's a similar experience is today we go and we see the great artists that we love and we have that charismatic connection. I just find it fascinating that after 100 years, 150 years, we don't have something like that that just jumps out at us because it was such a unique experience, a snapshot in time before we had mass media. I think you're right. I like to say that I study the history of mass media before mass media because it is a sort of mass experience as these candidates are for the first time with, with the National Railroad Network being able to travel all over the country and give the same speech to audiences everywhere and really nationalize their audience. But I think you're, you're absolutely right that there is a real connection with modern fan culture. There, there is a lot of, uh, of a link between how someone like Brian was viewed by ordinary voters in the 1890s and how someone like uh, Taylor Swift or, or uh, uh, someone like that is viewed today. I mentioned that clip of Billy Sunday from 1926. So let's hear that now and you can comment on his style. And I would encourage people to go to YouTube. We'll link to it at historyauthor.com and just watch him up there on the stage, his physical motions. In fact, it might be interesting to just watch it with the sound off, which is something that old television producers will tell you to do if you're new to TV. They'll say, watch the speech with it off. They'll tell candidates the same thing. Watch your performance in this debate or in this speech with the sound off. And, and that's how you critique yourself. Civilization and society rests on morals. Morals rest on religion. Religion rests on the Bible and faith in God and in Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't condemn any man because of his wealth. The Bible says the man that don't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. According to our standard of gold and silver, Abraham was worth a billion and a half of dollars. David was worth three billion. Solomon was worth five billion. Solomon could have hired Andrew Carnegie for a butler, J. Pierpont Morgan to cut his lawn, and Andrew Mellon for a chauffeur, and John D. looked to black his boots. America needs a tidal wave of the old-time religion. America needs to be taken down to God's bathhouse and the hose turned on her. 
And the time isn't far distant when the wheels of God's judgment are going to go sweeping through this old God-hating world. And I want to take a pledge in this audience to join me in a pledge that you will never rest until this old God-hating, Christ-hating, whiskey-soaked, Sabbath-breaking, blaspheming, infidel, bootlegging old world is bound to the cross of Jesus Christ by the golden chains of love. Well, Sunday is an interesting example. Sunday actually only had one semester of college, and during that semester, he studied, you guessed it, public speaking with a professor who was using the James Rush textbook uh, that these other people were studying from. Uh, and here's a little tidbit uh, that I think is exclusive to your listeners. I don't think I've talked about this before. Um, the professor who taught Billy Sunday to speak also taught another uh, woman named Winifred Ward, who became a public speaking professor at University of Wisconsin, and Winifred Ward taught my grandmother. So <laughs> wow. I have a personal link to to uh, Billy Sunday and his style of speaking. Um, what's interesting? Baseball about, player, by the way, who was a baseball player. Right, he was a baseball player who was known for his uh, base stealing ability, and in his pulpit presence, he was extremely athletic. He would stand on top of the pulpit. He would execute baseball slides into first base on the on the stage. Um, the thing about Sunday is that you can kind of hear it in this recording. He actually sounds a lot better in this recording than he does in other recordings. Sunday didn't have a very good voice. Uh, he had this, this very sort of scratchy voice. He talked very fast. And a lot of people who were listening to him couldn't understand it. So he was able to convert them almost entirely through the style that he was using, almost entirely through the gestures and the way that his intonation moved um, and those techniques that I mentioned earlier and not really through the ideas. Uh, and so Sunday's technique was particularly important for these conversions because he converts, uh, he, he probably converts 200,000 people, according to conservative estimates, over the course of his career. And yet he's doing it without them really being under, able to understand what he says. Hey, we're right back to Stevie Nicks there. I mean, the music moves you, and you don't necessarily have to hear and catch every word. You have to read the lyrics in the old days when we had actual cassettes, not MP3s, and you'd pull it out and say, oh, this is great. They put the lyrics here so I can understand exactly what she's saying about Rhiannon. But it really is part of the performance aspect, not to take anything away from it. It really is part of that experience, seeing them. And so you go, you sit there, and even if you don't understand every word, and I uh, clued right in there when you said that. I said, that's true. I was kind of straining there to hear what he said. I said, at one point he says A before a dollar or something like that. And I, I said, wait, did I miss that or not? But when you watched it or when I watched it, I didn't notice that. I didn't notice that the words were missing. I was so captivated by that style and trying to absorb it. It really was effective to draw you in. No, absolutely. I totally agree. William McKinley, in that 1896 campaign, wasn't of this charismatic style, and he recognized that wasn't his strength speech-making. After all those years in the House and his governor, just wasn't a skill he was required to develop. So although people pushed him, go, give speeches, he said, I can't challenge Brian on the stump. He was going to stick with that old style that you hinted at earlier about the office should chase the man. McKinley was going to stay home in Canton, Ohio, run a front porch campaign, run a campaign from his front porch, what we now call the front porch campaign. Also, his wife, Ida, was a sickly woman, and he didn't want to be dragging her around. He, he couldn't be away from her. So he said, I'm going to play to my strength. I will go out. He would 
talk to people beforehand and he would plan his speech. And then when they arrived on the train, he would get out, he would give his speech, and he would go back inside. And people were pleased with that. That was how he dealt with this. He also called upon speakers like Theodore Roosevelt to act as surrogates. That worked in 1896. McKinley beats Bryan. Then in 1900, TR is running as his vice president. Again, a great time to send TR out there to counter Bryan's speaking ability. We've all seen photographs of Theodore Roosevelt speaking, and he's very much like that style of Billy Sunday. He's gesturing and gnashing teeth. He'd eat a, excuse me, he'd drink a gallon of coffee a day. So when you hear <laughs> TR, you see those videos of him, or there's a picture of him famously on that front porch with William McKinley. And I always, in fact, I think the JPEG is saved as Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure because it's. Oh, I love it. In my in my computer. But the funny thing is, there's McKinley standing there, very straight, very collected, and he's looking at the camera and he's still. And TR's face is blurred. Because if you were Theodore Roosevelt standing still for the 18 seconds or even for two <laughs> seconds that it took to snap the picture, that's what that picture says to me. It's this is the difference between the two men. McKinley would go, he would give his speech, and we we do have little clips of him giving speeches. And it's standing there with his papers in front of him, just like these papers, and he gives it, and people applaud politely. Theodore Roosevelt, a completely different experience. The guy is all motion. He's all arms, legs, gnashing teeth, gestures, staring at you, leaning forward. When he was commissioner of the New York City police, they would say, we went in his office, we were afraid that he was going to bite us like a colt. You know, one one <laughs> policeman who was part of all this corruption going on says, I was afraid that he was just going to you know, bite me. I had, to, I had to back away. I'm like against the wall away from him. When TR runs his third party candidacy in 1912, however, he's trying to recapture the presidency and he uses those same styles, which by now are getting a little bit away from him. It's not necessarily what people want. And he's running against Woodrow Wilson, who's this very staid professor character who's never going to be able to give that kind of speech. And Taft is the incumbent president. So I wanted to roll how TR actually sounded. Not only because we get a flavor for how he employed the speaking style of the time, but also because people are surprised if they haven't heard T.R.'s voice to hear just what he sounded like. I believe that the majority of the plain people of the United States will, day in and day out, make fewer mistakes in governing themselves than any smaller class or body of men, no matter what their training, will make in trying to govern I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Our opponents pay lip loyal to this doctrine, but they show their real beliefs by the way in which they champion every device to make the nominal rule of the people a sham. I am not leading this fight as a matter of aesthetic pleasure. I am leading because somebody must lead or else the fight would not be made at all. So what do we learn there from hearing T.R.? Let us hear through your ears. What do you hear? Well, T.R. is a very interesting character. And uh, one of the most surprising things that I learned when I was researching this book was uh, really it just totally changed my idea of what kind of a speaker T.R. was. We think of T.R. as this great charismatic speaker. And the truth is he actually wasn't very good at the charismatic style. He didn't learn it in college, mostly because he didn't expect to be a politician. He thought he was going to be a scientist when he went to college. And he did take a class in rhetoric, uh, but his rhetoric professor was opposed to the charismatic style. He thought it was demagogic and bad for democracy. 
And so Teddy Roosevelt really never learns that style. And he, he develops a speaking style that is kind of idiosyncratic. As you mentioned, all these references to his teeth, there's a reason for that. Theodore Roosevelt developed this unnerving habit of clacking his teeth together during a speech when he would get really uh, emotionally attached. He, he would say something really angry and then he would go <laughs> and make this clacking noise and people wanted to know why he was doing that. And Roosevelt was able to be pretty effective on the stump, but if you read his speeches, his printed speeches, you'll you'll sort of wonder why, because they're really very dull. And he was actually one of the only speakers in this time period to write his speeches down before delivering them. Most speakers spoke extemporaneously, especially the charismatic ones. Roosevelt would write down or type out his speeches paragraph by paragraph on these half sheets of paper. The way that he connected with audiences, he would read the paragraph, and it really wasn't very exciting. It was pretty boring. And then he would drop the piece of paper theatrically on the stage where it would be picked up by souvenir hunters, and then he would just kind of riff on the issue that he'd raised in that paragraph, and that's when he got good. That's when people would listen to him. But what that meant was he was only good on the stump. You listen to him in this recording where he's not riffing. He's just reading the printed speech. You read his speeches in newspapers, and they just don't have the effect that you want them to. And so, as you mentioned, in 1912, he had some difficulty on the campaign trail because his campaign team made the mistake of not getting him in front of a lot of live audiences and focusing instead on getting his speeches published in newspapers, which didn't do him any favors because the speeches weren't particularly good. I mean, there's a few memorable epigrams about the man in the arena and such, but most of the speeches are really quite boring. And by not getting him in front of more audiences, they really kind of missed an opportunity to get him to connect with voters in the way that these charismatic figures did. We're listening to Jeremy C. Young. He's speaking to us about his book, The Age of Charisma, Leaders, Followers, and Emotions in American Society, 1870-1940. You can visit him on Twitter at Jeremy C. Young, find him online at jeremycyoung.com, or toss him a like to facebook.com slash theageofcharisma. Daniel Horowitz, author of On the Cusp, Yale College Class of 1960 and A World on the Verge of Change, writes, quote, With the age of charisma, Jeremy Young offers a richly suggestive, original, often brilliant and compelling history of how charisma stood at the center of American political culture from the 1880s to 1940. Fluidly written and wonderfully researched, it makes a significant contribution to our understanding of America's past, unquote. Jeremy, the age of charisma is all of those things. It's a very fine review from Mr. Horowitz, but I wanted to focus on just one part of the review. That is the phrase, wonderfully researched, something ephemeral like personal magnetism, like that spellbinding effect that you mentioned earlier, trying to picture your watch stopping because of the amazing experience you're having that's transcendental. We may be able to describe that or hear it, but we are used to hearing it and seeing it in video with an audio track. Since you're covering pre-TV, as you mentioned before, you're covering mass media before there's mass media, how did you go about digging into these historical figures to uncover little anecdotes like that or little observations about Theodore Roosevelt not being a great speaker, not being used effectively? Where do you go to find information about speeches when you can't just go and click on YouTube and find a Billy Sunday clip for every person you want to write about? 
you're right that the lack of audio really makes this a challenging project. And the audio clips that you've played are probably about 80% of the clips that are available. There really isn't a lot more than that. I'm grateful for the ones we do have because it helps me check the other observations that I'm making, but it's certainly not a very large collection of them. Where I went to find more information about these speakers is to read people's descriptions of them, which usually you can find in archives. People uh, like Billy Sunday, like William Jennings Bryan, people would write them letters and talk about what it was like to listen to them speak. And so I rely a lot on those letters, on those testimonials. Also, often when a figure would die, there would be a published book of reminiscences about them and about how they spoke. So Henry Ward Beecher, another charismatic speaker and minister, there's a published series of reminiscences describing specific speeches that he gave and the way that he talked and how he affected audiences. Another example of a source that I used a lot, a graduate student named William Auburn Bell did a dissertation in 1940 where he emailed, I sorry, he didn't email in, in 1940. He, <laughs> he wrote letters to a bunch of journalists, about 100 journalists who had covered Theodore Roosevelt and asked them what kind of a speaker he was. And he quotes from their, from their letters in, at length in the dissertation. And what they basically say is, well, he wasn't very good, but he managed to convince audiences to connect with him emotionally anyway because he was such a hard worker, because he campaigned so vigorously and because his energy was so obvious in the way that he spoke. So sources like that really are everywhere if you are looking for them. But if you're not looking for them, you're not going to find them. Uh, there have been five biographies of Billy Sunday written since the 1950s, all of which had access to the sources that I used to describe his speaking style. And they didn't use those sources because they weren't looking to. They were, lo they were trying to answer different questions about him. So if you ask the question, what do speakers sound like and why do they sound that way and how do they affect audiences in this time period, there, are, there is a wealth of sources out there that can answer that question. I love that. Something I talk about frequently with other guests is the idea of going back to those primary sources, not just retelling the same stories again and again. And when you do, isn't it amazing the things you can find? Here you wrote The Age of Charisma. It's about 1870. You start in the 1870s, 1880s. You would think we know everything as historians. You'd think you, as just a reader, will be able to just go to a shelf and get the full story. And yet we often fall into that trap where we just reread the same thing again and again, footnoted back and back and back. What a great thing that is that he decided, hey, let me ask the people who actually covered Theodore Roosevelt while they were still a living resource that you could access and say, what was it like to cover him? What was it like to sit there and listen to the guy speak? And it must be surprising for modern readers of yours or your students to hear that people weren't blown away for the reason of just the style. It was different reasons that people connected with TR. Oh, absolutely. And most historians who have written about him have simply not realized this, that, that Roosevelt wasn't a particularly good public speaker. There is a wonderful biography of Roosevelt by Kathleen Dalton, which does cover these issues very well. But for the most part, people just assume that he's a great public speaker because he's obviously so popular. He talks about the bully pulpit. He's the inventor of using the presidency as a way of spreading a, a public speaking message to the audience, to the people. But he does it all in spite of a poor speaking ability rather than because of a good speaking ability. 
It's a tool that you have to develop. Even Churchill, people always assume, well, those are all off-the-cuff speeches. Well, he wrote those down. He describes very vividly and very honestly his first time he has to stand up and speak in Parliament. You know, he writes that stuff down. So it really is a skill that you have to work on and develop. And today, we do have mass communication. You can go back, for instance, and listen to this interview and see if you'd like to change something, what worked, what didn't work. We have radio, TV, we have those YouTube clips where you have the power as a listener, as a voter, you can go and listen to a speech. You don't have to even get off your couch. You can be on the bus going to work and just watch it on your smartphone. That changes the way that people connected top to bottom in the age of charisma with people now connecting bottom to top. You can go and find them and you can have your connection from anywhere you want. You don't have to go and chase them down and seek that literally once in a lifetime connection where you maybe are even way in the back row and you can see the top of William Jennings Bryan balding head and say, oh, wow, I I really connected with the guy. That's absolutely (laughs) true. And one thing that your listeners may not realize is that every modern president delivers a weekly radio address. And in fact, since Barack Obama's time, those weekly radio addresses have also been uh, weekly YouTube addresses, and they are filmed and put on YouTube. Donald Trump delivers them as well. How many people listen to these? Very few, because we are so saturated with access through the media to our leaders that we no longer feel that every, every time we can hear them speak, it's a great gift and we must hang on their every word. We take it completely for granted that we even know what they sound like. Think about how few people and what the population would be compared to today that ever heard George Washington speak all the way up through, I guess, both Grover Cleveland's through William McKinley. Like nobody would even TR like people would not have heard them speak until we get to Herbert Hoover and really until FDR. So think of that. That's from 1776 all the way through when you get to 1935 or so, and you're unable to even hear what a speaker sounds like, something that today is so basic to us that we have entire television shows based on parodying what they sound like because we know what they sound like. They wouldn't have been able to, and so if you had a chance to have a voter hear you, man, you wanted them to remember it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mentioned FDR, and you have a New York Evening Journal cartoon in the Age of Charisma titled Champions. Describe it for our listeners and explain how you say it illustrates a new leader-follower relationship of the kind we're talking about following the Age of Charisma. So in this cartoon, which was drawn by a cartoonist named Burris Jenkins, there's a family sitting around the dinner table, and they are toasting the disembodied head of Franklin Roosevelt, which is sitting in their living room. (laughs) As you do. As you do, right. (laughs) And this really symbolizes, I think, the way that Franklin Roosevelt's fireside chats on the radio just absolutely changed everything again about how Americans thought about their leaders. So when Roosevelt delivered his first fireside chat, which was only nine days into his presidency, it was an earth-shattering event that was similar in the way Americans saw it to Brian's cross of gold speech. It just completely and fundamentally altered the way Americans imagined interacting with their leaders. Before Brian, Americans thought of their leaders as remote and distant figures who they never interacted with really at all. And then in the age of charisma, after Brian's speech, Americans would interact with their leaders, but only in a very sort of hierarchical way. So Brian's standing on a stage and speaking to you, and you're in the audience listening raptly to his every word. 
FDR changes that again. He comes into your living room on your radio and he just sits there and talks to you like an ordinary person. It, it really democratizes the relationship between leaders and followers. A woman named Mildred Goldstein writes to FDR after this speech, and she says, before today, the president of the United States was to me just a picture, just essentially something to imagine, but you are real. And that was a huge change in how Americans conceived of their leaders. It was much more democratic than anything that had happened before. And in many ways, it is the lasting legacy of this charismatic style. We don't hear people speak today in the way that William Jennings Bryan or even Franklin Roosevelt spoke, but we hear people expect this kind of emotional connection with their leaders. If a leader didn't speak to their followers today, we would have a pretty negative view of them. We would see them as elitist and not willing to make themselves available to their followers, and that's totally different from how people viewed it just 150 years ago. It's something with FDR, too, because you think of radio itself as such an intimate medium. It's much different than TV. In fact, I think you were mentioning about doing the YouTube address. It's totally different to see somebody. It's totally different to watch them. You're looking at what they're wearing. You're looking at if a fly lands on them or something. But radio, hearing the voice, it's it's actually interesting because we're talking about this charismatic style and saying, wow, you just had to see them do it. And yet then we talk about radio and we say, well, the voice was really a great connection for FDR. And now we've kind of come to the other extreme where we say, well, wait a minute. Now you see them almost too much and we don't hear them as much as we might. And it's really a view here in your book. It fills in a lot of those blanks. And I found myself thinking of many of the threads that run through to the present day, to the present campaigns. Reverend Billy Graham, just 99 this year in 2017, that was somebody who is a bridge here. He bridges. You discuss him in the age of charisma. He's an example of somebody who had to change with these changing times and technologies. Today, religious leaders can stream online anywhere in the world. They can do their own fireside chats. How has his style specifically managed to change with these times? And how did he use that to fulfill his missions over, gosh, now almost a century? One of the secrets of Billy Graham's success is that he was the first major evangelist, at least the first major Protestant evangelist, to adapt himself to mass media. Now, now Graham was fundamentally a revivalist. He operated in these massive in-person revivals like Billy Sunday did, but he pioneered in the 1940s the practice of filming these revivals and broadcasting them on television. And that really made him much more accessible on a national level to audiences who might not turn out for a revival in a way that Billy Sunday never was. So I would say he changes his speaking style a little bit as well. He becomes more conversational in a way similar to Franklin Roosevelt, less of this overwrought style that you hear someone like Brian using. And he really does. He adapts very effectively to the modern day. One thing that you mentioned just a little earlier uh, made me think of the idea of having too much visual exposure of our leaders made me think of this moment a few years ago when Senator Marco Rubio was delivering the Republican response to Obama's State of the Union address. And Rubio, of course, is a very eloquent guy. He speaks very well. One of the strong points of his political career has been his public speaking ability. But in the middle of his speech, he needed to take a drink of water and he reaches over for this 
little water bottle that they've given him. And somebody has told him, you must never take your eyes away from the camera. And so he's staring into the camera while taking this drink of water. And he just looks absolutely silly. And it's the only thing anybody remembers from that speech. Marco Rubio drinking out of this little water bottle. Not all of the eloquence that he deploys or all or the ideas that he talks about, just the visuals. So you're right. The addition of the visual medium really does change and distort how we see our leaders. And it's also something that we're much more, I think, juvenile today because we are spoiled with having everything around. We don't need to hang on every word that a candidate says because we can get that anytime. But if something funny happens, like I believe it was also Obama around the same time, I guess, had a fly land on him. And (laughs) oh, gosh, that's all anyone could talk about was that a fly landed on him. And if you watch other speeches now, I will say that often, oh, my gosh, so-and-so took a drink of water. Well, most people put it in a glass. And as you said, they don't maintain the eye contact. But just in that moment, that decided to be the takeaway was, oh, he dared to drink water with George H.W. Bush during one of the debates in 1992. He looked at his watch. Bill Clinton spoke really long. In fact, that was the dig against him in the 1988 campaign, the Democratic National Convention. He gave the keynote speech and they said, oh, my gosh, the guy wouldn't shut up. You spoke so long. You spoke too long. He went on Johnny Carson and Johnny Carson put out an hourglass and flipped it over and said, "Okay, go ahead and laughed, of course, Bill Clinton, part of it. I mean, he had the last laugh. He ended up being a candidate and ended up winning the nomination. But those are the things that people remember. And it's not about how you spoke. You go on TV, all people want to talk about is how you looked. If this was a video or a TV interview, you'd have people calling you saying, gosh, you know, Jeremy, do you have to wear that tie? Where'd you get that? Or your suit looked so good you know, or something like that. It is a completely different experience. And I think it's great to read the age of charisma here and think a little bit about a time when we did really want to focus on what they said. And the delivery was part of that, not not separate from that, not just the optics that we hear, the favorite wonk word of the moment, that people are just going to see you and, hey, it doesn't really matter what you say as long as you're good looking. I will admit that I am not actually wearing a shirt and tie. I'm wearing an I Love Charisma t-shirt, which I thought was appropriate (laughs) for this interview. So yes, if you could see me, that would be the only thing you could think about. Uh, Well, it's much easier than having to put on a suit and tie, I guess, and get made up and things like that. (laughs) True. Well, this show has been a stem winder. We'll still continue to use the term and hope that it catches on some more. But every good speech has that rousing conclusion. You will not press down this crown of thorns, etc. So I have one final question in that spirit. If you could climb in our time machine and travel back to hear any one of these leaders in this vast period you cover in the age of charisma deliver a speech, you said we've played 80% of the precious little audio that's still available. Which speaker would you like to go back to? Which speech would you like to hear them deliver? I actually asked this question of my students a few years ago, uh, and they came to the same answer that I did, which is that that we would want to hear Henry Ward Beecher. Henry Ward Beecher was the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Uh, and he was a famous minister and abolitionist in the 1860s and 70s. And Beecher was probably the very best of all of the charismatic speakers. As a child, he had a speech impediment. And so he trained using the, the Rush style for hours for three years during his college career at Amherst. And after having that level of training in this style, he was able to use it to speak extemporaneously, which is something that he was the only person who could ever do, to essentially invent a speech on his feet 
that had an enormously powerful emotional impact that didn't draw on any speeches he'd ever given before. And so I would love to hear a Henry Ward Beecher sermon. There is this wonderful speech that he gave in the 1880s on oratory in which he describes the living voice as the greatest force on earth among men. And he says that it will be that forever. And I certainly think if you listen to Henry Ward Beecher give that speech, you would probably agree with him. Well, Jeremy C. Young, author of The Age of Charisma, I want to thank you so much for lending your voice to the show today and also all of your knowledge here about these speakers that we can't hear, but who can still speak to us, can still communicate their ideas through their writing. Let us hear those great orators again if you find any new audio, because it would be great to hear from them. They moved America. They have the power to move us still. I wish you the best of luck with The Age of Charisma. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me on. Again, the book is The Age of Charisma, Leaders, Followers, and Emotions in American Society, 1870-1940. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Jeremy C. Young for joining us and for transporting us back to the days where charisma really was king. Pay him a visit on Twitter at Jeremy C. Young, visit him at jeremycyoung.com, or toss him a like. The address is facebook.com slash theageofcharisma. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or facebook.com slash historyauthor. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost as nice. Whatever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to meet. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.